0: this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com we continue the story of sue dobson's intelligence work as a kgb trained spy for the banned african national congress Sue is moving easily through the echelons of the racist South African government in her work as a journalist. She interviews apartheid ministers and had a honey trap affair with a police chief involved in the Namibian independence process. However, Sue's cover is blown leading to her desperate flight across southern Africa with the South African security police snapping at her heels. We hear in detail about her tense three-day car journey to the Soviet embassy in Botswana and how her KGB training saved her life. Sue has written a book about her experiences called Burned, The Spy South Africa Never Caught. There's links in the episode notes for you to purchase the book and support Cold War Conversations the battle to preserve cold war history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air via a simple monthly donation you'll become one of our community and get a sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea we also welcome one-off donations. I'm delighted to welcome Sue Dobson to our Cold War conversation.
1: Then, unfortunately, the next level of security clearance proved to be my undoing. And um, that was when I was actually offered a position and an interview, rather, for a position with F.W. de Clack, the state president's department, as a media officer. And that involved a very, very stringent security check. And that proved to be my undoing. doing.
0: Yeah, well, we will will come on to that. Um, So whilst you're at the South African Bureau of Information, you're offered a job in Namibia. Now, can you just briefly explain the position of Namibia at this point?
1: Namibia was known as basically German Southwest Africa, and it had um, been colonized by the Germans at the the time of colonization when Africa was divided up and had been inflicted upon the indigenous population of Namibia. They had been colonized by the Germans and there was a series of of brutal conflicts that one didn't really know a great deal about where the indigenous people had been massacred by um, the Europeans basically and Theirs was a history of great suffering and great oppression, which is very little known about, actually. And this was a territory that had almost, by proxy, become an extension of South Africa. The same sort of policies applied in Namibia that applied in South Africa, perhaps a little less stringently, but nonetheless, there was still discrimination There was still very overt racism. Um, There was still separate development, um, if you like, if you want to call it that. And there was a system of apartheid, but perhaps not by as many words, if you like. And um, for the independence of Namibia under Resolution 435 with the United Nations, um, that was actually sort of coming in, into play in the late 80s. And at that point, I was working for the Bureau of Information and the Bureau of Information was involved in Namibia trying to disrupt the election process and trying their very best to promote parties that were sympathetic to South Africa and trying to decrease the possibility of the Southwest Africa People's Organization, SWAPO, coming to power and getting a strong majority, which unfortunately is what they did. SWAPO did come to power, but did not have the majority as it was expecting to achieve. And that was largely a result of South Africa's efforts to destabilize it at that period. And that's just at the point that I became involved with the Bureau and the Bureau was involved with various interviews and um, activities, really, in Namibia at that point in time.
0: And you're, you're flown to Namibia on a, on a military plane and yes. um, it's quite an interesting flight.
1: It certainly is. Yeah. Because of the possibility of um, a missile attack from Angola, one had to fly at a treetop level, if you like, to avoid um, being struck with with a missile and we had to do what we they called a corkscrew landing where one would go down almost in a spiral which is a very disorientating process and, and quite nauseating as well you can imagine what it's like in the, in an extremely hot air, aircraft it's a bit like being in a tin can and you know you are absolutely thrown down onto the ground and um It's quite an experience, but you know, I I had the um, interesting experience of having several of those um, flights in my time up there.
0: When you arrive in Namibia, you come in contact with a potential uh, important source of information.
1: I certainly do, and um, he is Heston Debrain, and um, he was the police liaison officer in that area. So he was very aware of the activities going on in terms of Resolution 435 for the withdrawal of South African troops from Namibia and um, the withdrawal of South Africans from Angola because South African had also been involved in the Angolan um, conflict. They had backed UNITA in Angola and um, part of Resolution 435 was to ensure the withdrawal of South African troops from Angola and from the north of Namibia, which is where they were operational and most of their bases were. And um, this gentleman was actually the liaison officer with the uh, police, the South, what was known as the Southwest African Police, and he was responsible for um, giving information to the press. And it turned out that he had quite a history himself as a security policeman in South Africa. So he was immediately of interest to me. You, You start a
0: relationship with him?
1: I do, yeah.
0: And was that part of your remit or did you think that that was a way of gaining his trust and and getting further info
1: i had no remit as such my briefing was to basically go home and to do my best and to take whatever opportunities came my way which is exactly what i did and i realized that this was something that was extremely risky Um, It was something that had to be very controlled. It was something that I had to be constantly focused on the prize, if you like. And if I say to you, the end justifies the means, that's probably the best explanation for that episode in my life. I was that focused on the fact that this person had access to so much information. He was aware of troop movements. He was aware of the paramilitary organization called Kufut, which was still operating with impunity in that area, even though it was not supposed to be. He was aware of troop movements. Um, He was an absolute mine of information. And one has to make decisions. Sometimes one has to make decisions um, on the ground, so to speak, and sometimes you have opportunities that come your way and you have to weigh up the possibilities of those opportunities and fly with them. And that's what I did. I took my opportunities and I made the best of them. How are you
0: passing this information back to the, to the ANC? How are you communicating with them during this period?
1: It was extremely difficult to call for meetings at that period of time in history. Um, You know, we were still very much a part of of the Cold War, if you like. And our methods of communication were those methods that were taught to us um, in the Cold War. Um, For instance, you would send a coded message. You might send a postcard to London if you needed a a meeting with Ronnie, and there would be a coded message on that, you know, give my regards to cousin Norman or something. And he would know that if he sees that phrase, he must meet you at a certain time and a certain place, which has been prearranged or there would be a message in the classifieds, for instance. Um, You know, one would have to look at that on a certain day of the week to see if there was a message for you. Um, And you would work out what that message was, and that might be a call for a meeting, or there would be an urgent need for a meeting to exchange information, or there would be um, perhaps an indication that you were in danger, And you needed to uh, retreat or you needed to change your plans or your way of operating. So it was was very difficult to do, but very, obviously, very essential to do.
0: Did you get the impression at any point that the brain had any suspicions about you?
1: It was difficult to say. Um, He was aware of the fact that I was a journalist. And I think because of that, there was a bit of reserve towards me. But then on the other hand, they were desperate to actually have journalists who would promote their side of things, if you like. And at one point, I found myself in a really peculiar position where I was offered a, a post as, a, as another police liaison officer. So, um, you know, it was was very much a double-edged sword and it had to be something that I was constantly vigilant about. I had to be very watchful and I was also aware of the danger because I could disappear at any time. You know, if he decided to dispense with me, I could be gone and no one would be the wiser. No one would know what happened to me. So I was very conscious of the fact that if there were any subtle changes, if there were any changes in atmosphere or demeanour, I needed to think about that. And I needed to weigh up whether that was dangerous or not. But half the time, I think he thought I was just a fluffy little bit on the side and probably nothing to worry about, you know.
0: Just ashamed, well, that, that really. was the aim, right? <laughs> wasn't it? So.
1: Well, absolutely. And, you know, being that little fluffy blonde thing, um, you know, that nobody took seriously, served me in good stead. And, you know, to some <laughs> to some extent, it still does. But, um, you know, appearances can be deceptive. And the more usual you are, the more ordinary you are, the more successful you are. And, um, you know, my my experience is testimony to that.
0: I mean, in in the book, you describe some meetings with names that I'm familiar with from that period, and I think probably one of the more chilling. Well, well, there's quite a few chilling ones, but you you have a a meeting with Pick Botha.
1: Yes, very unpleasant character, I'm afraid. Um, I didn't find that at all. Um, Let me say that was probably one of the most unsettling interviews I've had. Um, He watched me come into the room. the, The whole room was in darkness. It was the strangest situation. There was next to no security. And I walked into the room in the union buildings in Pretoria, his office in the union buildings, the absolute of government. I walked into it. The room was almost in darkness. And I was aware of being watched, but I couldn't see where. I didn't know where I was being watched from. And then I looked up and I noticed that he was standing there looking in a mirror, combing his hair. Now, his hair was very heavily brill-creamed at the time. You remember (laughs) brill-cream, you know, the hair oil. And his hair was heavily brill-creamed. He had jet-black hair and these very, very dark eyes. And he was watching me in the mirror. He was looking at my reflection as I came into the room and obviously watching me as I turned around to try and find out where he was or where I should go. He was watching my every move. Um, And he was definitely was very accomplished when it came to interviews. He was extremely evasive, and if you got too close to the bone, he would be quite defensive and quite aggressive. So he had a way of actually blustering and forcing you to change the topic and making it quite personal, but at the same time was very intimidating. You know, he he had a very, um, how shall I say, I was acutely aware of being a woman, let me say that. It's put it that way, um, that he was very watchful of me all the time I was in there um, and a very, very slippery character, um, especially when it came to negotiations for Resolution 435. He was extremely difficult to pin down.
0: Now, Pik Botha was the Minister for Foreign Affairs in the South African government from the late 70s to 1994.
1: He was also um, pivotal in the independence process for Namibia. And he actually took on several negotiating roles at that point. Um, you know, he would negotiate with the Cuban contingent. He would negotiate with the Americans. I think it was Chester Crocker who was the his equivalent at that time. And certainly, you know, he was up there with all the international figures. And I think he was a force to be reckoned with because he was quite belligerent in his his manner. And certainly he was was not easy to interview. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch
0: and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. How did you manage to square, you know, the, the fact that you're working to put out information that's basically lies that is trying to destabilize Namibia and that some of the stories that you're putting out could be costing people's lives i mean how do you deal with that
1: Do you know conscience is a difficult thing and i've said before you know there are times in this process where you feel that you've sold your soul to the devil but you have to keep your eye on the prize and you have to be disciplined the discipline in this is everything um, you have to be focused, you have to be disciplined. And you know, there are times where you would wobble. There are times when you're afraid. And I think that the secret is is not to overthink it, but to fly with it and, and to go with it. And that certainly helped for me. Um, you know, I, I felt also confident because I knew I had had the best training in the world, I knew that I was equipped to do the job, and I was confident in what I was doing. I knew that I had 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 the best instructors in the world, and they had taught me well.
0: So are you are you sort of saying there that the ends justify the the means?
1: I do, I do. As harsh and as as difficult as that may sound. You know, one has to remember that this, it might not be a conventional theater of war, but nonetheless, we were at war. We were fighting for a democratic South Africa. I was part of the military wing. Of, I, was a part of, I was part of the ANC. We were at war. We have to remember what the stakes were, that there were people that were imprisoned. There were people who were tortured, There were people who lost their lives. You know, this was far-reaching. We were at the point now in history where the world was watching South Africa. All eyes were on South Africa. And it was such an important period in history. You know, what they were doing in Namibia was actually a blueprint for what they intended to do when... Nelson Mandela was released, and the ANC would be going towards free and fair elections. They wanted to destabilize those the way that they were destabilizing Namibia. Namibia was their dry run, if you like. So this was enormously important. And I think it's one of those things that one appreciates with the benefit of time and hindsight, because at the time... There was so much happening in South Africa, and everything was happening in Namibia at the same time. It was very difficult to differentiate between the two. All the dirty tricks that they did in Namibia, they would roll out again in South Africa. All the poisonings, these shootings, the assassinations, Namibia was the dry run for it. They cut their teeth on Namibia, basically. And Puck actually admitted to the Dirty Tricks campaign in his, you know, some years down the line. He admitted to that. You know, he admitted that we had had South, South Africa had had a role in destabilizing what was going on in Namibia. It was actually admitted. So I feel, you know, that the information that was passed on was so valuable at that time.
0: in 1989, you're offered a new job, and this is in the office of the South African president. So this is huge, the possibility of getting an ANC spy into the office of the president of South Africa. Now, The belly of the beast. The belly of the, 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 the beast. But you're in Namibia one evening after the job application's gone in, and you get a phone call. Can you just describe that?
1: I could only say that my heart dropped because that was the physical sensation. um, The phone rang. There was nothing else in that room. There was just one telephone in the middle of the room and that's where all the instructions from Pretoria came through. They came through via the telephone. And that phone rang that night and I happened to pick it up and it was for me. And the message was, don't go anywhere, we are coming up to accompany you to Pretoria. The person didn't identify themselves. Um, It was an Afrikaans-speaking man. Um, No effort was made to identify. I did ask who it was, but he didn't tell me. And I was told not to move, and I would be accompanied back to Pretoria for the interview. Now, I knew full well that... Under ordinary circumstances, I would have gone off to Vintok Airport and got on a plane on, on my own, thank you very much, and got back to Pretoria on my own steam. I didn't need to be accompanied. And I realized then that the game was probably up. And I knew that the security clearance was imminent. And that's exactly what had happened. The security clearance had been done and they had found the connection.
0: And so, have you got an exfiltration plan in place for this eventuality?
1: Do you know, I had no assistance from the ANC on this. I had no input from Ronnie. I had no guidance from Ronnie. I had no money. I had no escape route. I had no papers. I had no weapon. I had absolutely nothing. And I put that phone down and I thought, what the hell do I do now? Um, I, I sort of remember looking at the pattern on the carpet and thinking, well, what now? And I didn't have a map. It was before the days of the internet. I couldn't Google anything or look up anything at all. I had a little map in my diary, which I tore out, and it was of Southern Africa, and it wasn't even very detailed, but it had, you know, sort of the main roads on it, really, and that was about it. And I thought, well, That's all I've got. And it was entirely up to me to get out. And I had to use my own resources. And it it turns out that that's what I did. I waited until everyone was asleep in the government house that night, the government house where I was staying. And I went out. I took one of the government cars from the carpool. And I drove to the United Nations presence there in in Vintuk and asked them to help me because the United Nations were there to oversee the independence process of Namibia. They couldn't help me. I looked for the Russian contingent. There were two Russians who had recently come to Vintuk. They wouldn't help me. They were on their way to a cocktail party. But what they did do was verify who I was. They sent a telex to Moscow. And then i was completely alone. And I thought, well, what do I do now? So, I took a taxi to the airport, tried to find out if there was a flight out. There wasn't a flight for several days and did the next possible thing, which was hire a car. Now, the only way I could get out really was to drive from Namibia to Botswana and hope that I might be able to contact the Russian mission in Gaborone in Botswana and that they would be able to help me because nobody else clearly was around to help me. But in order to do that, one needed a four-wheel drive because it's going through the desert. There was none such a thing available. So I had to hire an ordinary car and I had to choose a route which took me back through South Africa and then up again Into Botswana, which was incredibly risky. But I thought, well, do what you usually do in plain sight. It's something that they won't suspect. And that's what I did. And that's exactly how I managed to get out. It took several days, but that's how I got out.
0: During that journey, you notice that there is some surveillance there.
1: Most definitely. Most definitely, I picked up surveillance um, in the cars behind me. There were at least two cars, who were part of a surveillance party. Um, for some reason, they didn't intercept me. I think perhaps they were waiting to see where I was going, or perhaps they were waiting to see if I was going to meet someone. Perhaps they thought I was going to meet Ronnie, and they would get, you know, catch a big fish. And um, for some reason, they decided to hold back, but they were definitely on my tail. And bizarrely enough, a school friend of mine, um, who I'd known for for many years, was part of that contingent. He had joined the security police and found himself working on the project, which was to bring me back to South Africa. Wow. So that was a bit of a shock to the system to find out later on.
0: Uh, Yeah. How did you find that out? Did you actually talk about it with him afterwards? I
1: found out later. Um, I found out through a mutual friend of ours, actually, who said, did you realize that one of the people on your tail was this man that we had known that we'd grown up with? Um, You know, we'd been out together in, in a group as teenagers. We'd, you know, we knew each other quite well. And, you know, it was one of those things that, sort of runs through my life, really, um, which is the theme of betrayal, um, if you like. And it's just another betrayal, really. Um, Anyone who had had any principles would have refused to have been part of that contingent, who would have said, no, I'm not doing that. But instead of that, he saw that as an opportunity, possibly for promotion, who knows? I'll never know. But I I can only assume that that was his motivation.
0: The um, South African police have tried to get your dad involved.
1: They did. They certainly did. And um, I think my parents suffered greatly at that time. You know, the security police went to visit them. The director of the Bureau for Information arrived in a swanky black car. um, All the men in black suits from National Intelligence. And they were very frightening, I think. They turned the house upside down. They took photographs of me. They they took them away. Um, and my parents turned on the news that night, and there was their little house, you know, the lead story. There was a picture of their house. So, you know, they were really intimidated and very, very frightened. And um, at the time, they had suggested to my father that, the decent thing to do was to go and get me back, you know, to bring me back from Botswana, to bring me back to Pretoria and to help me see reason. In actual fact, what they wanted to do was to intercept me, bring me back to Pretoria, arrest me and interrogate me. And um, if my training in the USSR had come out, I would have faced 15 to 20 years on a high treason charge. Wow. So, you know, my father I think was probably so frightened and so intimidated by it all that he probably agreed to that. But, you know, betrayal is betrayal, isn't it? It's painful.
0: Yes. Unless you're in a situation, it's difficult to put your yourself exactly in in those shoes and know you know how, how you'd react absolutely um, and
1: for him the terror must have been enormous you know he was he'd been a civil servant all his life he lived a very quiet life he was um didn't have many friends and then all of a sudden these people descend and you know playing the good cop bad cop role you know and he must have been so terrified that he just did whatever he thought he should do to get out of that situation
0: And I think what people often don't put the perspective on when you're looking at situations like this is that you don't know that apartheid and, you know, the South African state as it was, is going to disappear within a few years. It's like when when people talk about living in East Germany, you know, you didn't know the Berlin Wall was going to disappear in 1989. As far as they knew, that life was going to be, Forever. You
1: know, we had no idea that we were almost at that point at the end of the Cold War. We had no idea. I mean, I went into exile later on and I remember seeing um, the Berlin Wall coming down and I remember seeing the independence movements sort of sweeping through Eastern Europe and seeing the demise later on of the USSR and the end of the Cold War, but we had no idea that we were part of that. We were one of the outposts of the Cold War, if you like, that all of that that was going on, and my involvement with the USSR, my training, um, the USSR's assistance of the liberation movements, and also the ANC, um, that that itself was part of the Cold War. It was part of Um, the socialist movement, if you like, because the policies that one followed at that time were definitely socialist in orientation. It's difficult to realise that we were so caught up in history at that time that we were all connected. Even though, you know, I'm in the middle of the the African desert, it's still an example of a Cold War story, if you like.
0: Let's get back to the African desert. Now, the, the surveillance does get a bit close to you, doesn't it? It certainly does, yeah. Can you just describe the, the, the incident at the Wimpy?
1: Well, I was aware of the fact that there was a government car on my tail. And I mean really on my tail. If I accelerated, he accelerated. If I braked, he braked. And I got into a parking area, parked the car, sure as nuts. He followed me. He found a place to park. He watched me. And I watched him come into the wimpy. He was watching me. I was watching him. We both looking at each other. You know, it's a really bizarre incident, really. You know, the, the, who's the watched? Who's the, who's the watcher and who's the watched? And in the end, I decided that I was going to flush him out. So I managed to get up from the table, go upstairs towards the ladies' um, restroom. And he followed me. And at that time, I doubled back, ran down the stairs, got back in the car, and managed to get away. And that was the closest I came to actually being picked up. I was very, very close indeed. And, um, you know, he was a little provincial cop. He was, you know, just doing a bit of overtime on the weekend. And he'd obviously been told to watch me and he was very clumsy he was very obvious he didn't bother let's say to hide what he was and who he was and for that reason i suppose it was i was fortunate in getting away
0: yeah so this was in south africa was it
1: yes this was actually in south africa i had driven for days i had hired the car in namibia i drove through namibia back into South Africa, then up again towards Botswana, crossed into Botswana, and made my way towards Gaborone so I could meet the Russians at the... hope. Well, I was hoping I would meet the Russians at the Russian mission. They had no idea I was coming, as far as I know. Um, As I say, this was before the age of Internet. There was no way I could let anybody know I was coming, and... It would have been very unwise to use a phone anyway, because those phones were probably tapped. So one couldn't make a phone call and say, I'll be arriving. You know, you couldn't do that. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Totally exhausted, totally, totally drained, and really just on adrenaline. Um, you know, not sleeping, constantly watchful, um, and yes, afraid. You know, I, I mean, I, I can't deny it. I was afraid, but I was also determined as hell. I thought, you, you know, you are not going to get me, and if you do get me, you're going to get me, me standing. You know, you certainly won't take me out. Um, And I was just determined to do the best I could, even if they got me before I got there. At least I tried and I'd done my best and I was determined to do that.
0: I mean, that that crossing the border from South Africa into Botswana must have been a, a nervy moment.
1: It was awful because I knew I was under surveillance then and there were a few cars behind me. And we stopped at the border. It was dusk, and um there was a, a security check because they regularly checked that there were not weapons being brought you know from the neighboring countries into south Africa there there were, but they were very cleverly disguised. but we had roadblocks when you went into these countries, and um I was going into Botswana and you know, I was stopped and um, I was quizzed and I was absolutely terrified by that point because there was a a cop who was sort of really interested in me. He wanted to know where I was going, what my name was. He looked in the boot, he looked in the back seat, he ruffled through the, the glove compartment and I thought, well, you know what, this is it. This This is just the prelude to finding out who I am but it wasn't and you know somehow (laughs) by the grace of God or or whoever I managed to just carry on the journey but I was so shaken and so aware and that stretch of road is extremely inhospitable it's very dark and it's um, also like a single track if you like and there are lots and lots of of heavy traffic, lots of heavy trucks on that road so it was an awful drive into Pagabba Road. It was really very, very frightening and very stressful and it was just at the end of the day so visibility was very, very poor um, bearing in mind that I know I'm under surveillance as well.
0: So what what did you do when you reached Gaborone?
1: I made my way to the Holiday Inn of all places and um, I thought I need access to a phone. I've got to get hold of of the Russian consulate or mission or you know whatever they were that the presence in Gabarone. I have to get hold of them. So I booked in. I booked a room. I went upstairs, um, turned on all the taps in the bathroom, because I was aware of the fact that if you have running water, you won't be able to hear the conversation on the phone that clearly. So I picked up a phone book. I found the number bizarrely enough um, bearing in mind I was so shaky and so exhausted you know I I could barely hold the telephone directory to find the number and I dialed the number and a Russian voice answered and I spoke in Russian and um, I do know a little bit of conversational Russian so I spoke a bit and I explained who I was and he said wait there I'll be there in half an hour. Go downstairs to the back entrance and wait for me. And I did exactly that. I went down the um, fire escape to the back of the building at that allotted time. And a car came around the corner. He stopped. He said, get in. And I did. I got in and I. he said, get down. And I curled myself into the footwell of the car and he drove through the streets of Gaborone until he got to the Russian compound where, the, where they stayed. And that, of course, meant that um, if he took me into that area, I would have diplomatic immunity and the South Africans would not be able to get me. And he said, you've done this just in the nick of time because the South Africans go all over Gaborone looking for you. And he helped me out of the car. And there was an apartment there. They put me up in the apartment. Um, they called a nurse to check me over. And it was the first sort of meal I'd eaten properly in probably three or four days. They got me food and sort of Ru- Russian black bread and Russian tea. And I, I slept probably for 12 hours and... Um, before I did that, they actually started to talk. And we, we started with the debriefing and that continued over the next day or so. And the plan was to put me on a plane and get me out of Africa, get me to the to Europe where I could ask for political asylum as an exile. And that's what I did. Um they got me on a plane to um the UK. Unfortunately that stopped off at johannesburg and i was convinced that the police were going to board and take me off but they didn't and luckily we went on to the uk and um, i applied for political asylum as an exile and that's where i stayed
0: wow i mean i hadn't realized the plane had landed at johannesburg that must have been a terrible moment my goodness
1: it was horrendous it was awful luckily i was the last one to board the plane and um, they waited with me at security at gaborone airport until it was the very last minute so my russian you know companions were with me and then at the very last minute before they closed the boarding they pushed me through and i rushed up onto the plane and the last remaining seat it was packed absolutely packed um they you know we were picking going to pick up in johannesburg but it from that part of the flight that leg of the flight was absolutely packed and i managed to get a seat in the middle section of the aeroplane right in the middle of the of the back row and that's where i sat and when it stopped at johannesburg we had the option of getting off or staying on board and i stayed on board and just basically tried to hide and luckily nothing happened And I managed to get to the UK safely.
0: Wow. Wow. But even in the UK, you're not safe. You know, a bit like when we talked about earlier, you're still a target and South African security forces are operating out of the embassy on Trafalgar Square.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, we had a spate of, of attacks and assassinations at that time. A little while earlier, Dulcie September, the ANC representative had been assassinated. There had been attacks on on other South Africans in Europe. And we were very conscious of the fact that there was also a, um, there were death squads. You know, they, they didn't think twice about coming to the UK. They had people who worked for South Africa. They had South African agents in Europe. Whose brief was to take out ANC members, and also there were the poisoning campaigns where um, you know exiles would receive the parcel from home, and exile being what it is, you know you you're very homesick, you're very lonely, you're delighted to get something from home, so you you know you tear open the package, and that's been impregnated with poison. It, it It happened. And you know, at the time, um I uh, ended up expecting a baby not long after I'd got to the u k. and i I was sort of very excited about that because it was a new, you know it was it is a new time in my life. it It meant I could put that behind me and and focus on something that was more healing and and more restorative. And I would get parcels from my mother. Of baby clothes, and those clothes would have been ripped open, and the letters would have been torn up. And everything I received from South Africa had to go through the x-ray machine at the ANC headquarters in Penton Street in London, in case there was a parcel bomb, because they favoured parcel bombs and they favoured poisonings. You know Ruth first was assassinated in with the parcel bomb. In Mozambique. Um Sachs was blown up and lost an arm and an eye, I think it was. Um, you know, they, they had a a remorseless campaign against ANC people. And the message was that we were we there was nowhere where we were safe. They would find us everywhere. And that's unfortunately they did in some circumstances.
0: Now, you kept this story to yourself for quite some time.
1: I and did. And then
0: one of your children um, <laughs> discovered that their mum had do. been a spy. <laughs> Can you just tell us about the, the how that was revealed?
1: Well, some years after coming into exile, um, I had my children. And at that time, I had patched up my relationship with my parents. It was far from ideal. My father never spoke or apologized for what he did. He never discussed it with me. But I was determined that I would have a relationship with my that he would have a relationship with his grandchildren. And for that reason, I put that issue aside. It wasn't easy, it hurt me a great deal, it made me very angry, but I had to prioritise and I had to put myself out of the picture. It was for them and not for me. So there were several trips to South Africa and at that point in time, my son must have been about 10 and he must have realised somehow, there must have been something said about my past. He'd picked up a, a book. In the, in the equivalent of WH Smith, and he was reading about spies. And he said at the top of his voice, Ma, this book says you're a spy. And that was it. I was out. <laughs> I was rumbled. The game was up. <laughs> and I never intended to tell my children. I, I, I never intended to tell anyone, because I was, you know, in the throes of PTSD. It was something that wasn't really recognized at that time and I was struggling with that and I was I was trying to create a normal life and, you know, I don't think my life will ever be normal or usual really but I was trying, let's put it that way. And um, there was this voiceless, innocent voice and that's how I told them. And that was the beginning of me talking about this. And it took me many, many years to realize that, you know, my role in the South African liberation struggle was as important as anybody else's. I might be a white South African, but I'm as South African as anybody else. And my contribution is is as significant as anyone else's. And I think that was what made me decide to tell my story
0: don't miss the episode extras such as videos photos and other content just look for the link in the podcast information the podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and i'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road if you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate The Cold War conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.